Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. This is Lisa Reagan with Kindred, and I'm here with Robin Grill. Hello, Robin. Hey, Lisa. Hi there. So I am uh, looking forward to talking to you about your book, The Inner Child Journeys, and how our children grow us up. Well, first of all, I want to say how good it is to be um, speaking with you once again. I think we've, uh, it's been a long time between drinks. Um, yes. Yeah, great to see you again. Yeah. I love our conversations. Yes, yes, long time. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wanted to talk to you about um, the yep. inner child journeys and maybe just to give people some context about your work, you could tell us uh, how does this fit in with Parenting for a Peaceful World? And after that, you had heart-centered parenting. Sure. Okay, so this is my third book, the one that, that I've just released, Inner Child Journeys. The first one was Parenting for a Peaceful World. That came out in the first edition in 2005. And um, that book was uh, essentially looking at the enormous importance of child rearing and how the, the net overall effect of, of the way that we collectively raise our children it drives history, it drives the politics of a nation. So that every time that there is a kind of a quantum evolutionary step forward in the way that we address collectively our children's emotional needs, that nation will, in one generation or two, take um, a, a, a correspondent leap forward in democracy and peace. And um, gosh, that sounds simplistic, but there is so much to it. And um, uh, and the evidence is really powerful. And, you know, when I discovered that by, you know, looking into the field of um, psychohistory, the history of childhood, the history of how, um, how nations and cultures have related to childhood throughout the world, you know, that was the most exciting thing that I had bumped into in my whole life. I just couldn't wait to tell people about it. And the implications are just enormous. I mean, it would have never occurred to me in a million years that changing childhood is, is quite potentially the, the most powerful form of social activism that you can imagine. And it always has been. And that book was just yeah. translated into Cantonese. And weren't you just in Hong Kong promoting it? That's right. It was um, a group of people, of educators in Hong Kong. I'm, 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 I'm just so pleased with that. I was in Hong Kong they, at their invitation, running workshops for about 10 days um, in October in 2019. And um, it's fascinating what's going on over there because, um, you know, the, the stereotype of the tiger mom, I don't know if you use that terminology mm -hmm. in the States, it's true. Mm. And, and um, it exists and it's, it's huge in Eastern uh, East Asia in China and Korea and Japan 
um, there is a very, very broad tendency to push the children so incredibly hard. The stress is enormous. And to, and to push them toward, away from the expressive arts. And there's a lot of suffering as a result of that. What I found when I, when I got to Hong Kong is that, you know, we were in the middle of the riots. And on the surface, it looks like Hong Kong Chinese are desperately fighting for democracy against the, 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 the bully of authoritarian mainland Chinese government. And it, I really got the sense that it's um, in, in a deeper way. The, the younger generation is trying to get more air in their lungs. They're, they're really reacting against the entire tradition of squashing children into a box where they all feel so, oh, I say all, not all, of course, but there is such a cultural crush to, um, to drive children towards a particular version of success. And they're in a lot of pain and suffering and, 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 and depression about it. And of course, rage and reactionism. So, um, the, the epiphany that I had while I was there is that the, the great kind of, you know, it's thought of as a, as an economic miracle that, uh, development has taken off so rapidly in, in, uh, in China. And, um, uh, there is, you could see it through the lens of success if you put on that lens, but I think that it's a kind of success that has been won by suppressing the play impulse in their children mm. by suppressing the play impulse. And that has devastating results to human health and vitality and love and, and also the ability to be innovative and creative so that it's a kind of a capitalism that is, um, American sounds very American. <laughs> well, Actually, no, I, I don't think so. I think that America still remains a leader in, in, in innovation if, um, because, uh, you know, and I'm going to differentiate aspects of progressive American culture from the government that you've had for a while now. That's been hacked. Yeah. That has been hacked by a neoliberal movement. But, but um, there, there is something in the water and something in the soil of American culture that has given permission to be innovative, creative, and, uh, and to, um, you know, I do understand America is divided and there's a very, a very toxic authoritarianism on one side and, uh, but also equal and opposite. Uh, a very well, the play piece has been taken out. Yeah. It was taken out a while back in America, especially with young children in kindergarten and pushing kids to be academic from early ages. That was that's something yes. that's just coming around now for discussion in, in mainstream yeah. media, surprisingly. In, in schools, yes, mm -hmm. I do mm -hmm. see that. Um, yes. Schools are pushing what I think is a neoliberal agenda of, of, uh, of starting to create, wanting to create just unthinking young people, uncritical young people. Um, it will take a long time to beat that out of Americans generally, I think, because, and I think they will fail. As, an, as a non-American, I can see from the outside by comparison, and, and I've got a lot of cultures in my, in my being, that there, there remains a very strong, strong cultural streak of innovativeness 
and disrespect for authority that is very healthy in large, if not, not across from sea to shining sea, but in large swathes of American cultures of which there are many, I think. So um, I do think that America, the American century because of that is not over because there are great possibilities for that innovative spirit that is way ahead to come through again, to survive the neoliberal uh, Holocaust that is going on there right now. Um, well, then let's that, go back yeah. for just a quick second and talk yeah. about um, Hong Kong, and because yeah. it does sound a little similar with uh, the the revolt. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I read articles about how Americans are unusual because we're not actually taking to the streets right now, despite uh, the dismantling of our country in numerous ways. But yeah. um, the but the young people that you're seeing in Hong Kong who are protesting. Um, how are they different again that you're saying from American youth and Americans? They're desperate and they don't have a belief um, that everything is okay. And that gives them a great advantage in Hong Kong because they can't fall asleep in front of an iPad or, or television they, they, they cannot um, anesthetize themselves with junk food and feel like they are, you know, the greatest nation on earth and they're representatives of human freedom and, and uh, et cetera. They don't, they don't have a belief in Captain Hong Kong who flies through the air protecting everyone, okay? And, mm -hmm. and so because they haven't been stupefied by that belief in, you know, we are good, they're free to know, uh, you know, that the shit stinks and that's where it is. Uh, and um, they're angry, but they're full of spirit. And the people that invited me to Hong Kong are um, a response group of um, progressive educators and homeschoolers who are very, very frightened for the welfare of, of children they see how it, it is breaking children, leading them to suicide or nervous breakdowns early in life, mm. early, very, very young little kids. They're breaking with the pressure of the tiger mom sort of culture. Uh, and they've grown up in it and they know the pain of it. They've kind of had that waking up road to Damascus moment where they no longer feel like they're a part of it. Um, so they've created some very pro progressive and interesting schools and a lot of them homeschool their kids to protect them and to give them freedom to choose to study from a place of love rather than obedience. And um, they're clinging to each other for safety and survival. And they're the ones that uh, very powerfully, very beautifully translated my book. And they're so, I mean, if there's one thing I've never seen this much resourcefulness there's one thing about chinese people is that the culture has created an if not innovative definitely resourceful when they decide to do something they make it work it's they're extraordinary so um that's it we're translating your book we like it and you're over here we're going to run these workshops and we're going to do all kinds of stuff with it and roll it out um i'm 
I mean, all actually of, of, uh, of what they've done. And I was just humbled by um, being there and, and being and hearing their hearts, their struggle while I was there. They taught me so much. Mm. Um, and and it, it brought me back to the theme of my first book, the value of that theme, Parenting for a Peaceful World. I still mean that title. If we want a peaceful world, it begins by treating the children peacefully. That's not peaceful to force kids into, in, into what you want them to learn. That's a declaration of war against childhood, a declaration of war against playfulness. And uh, there's a straight line between that style of education and depression or rage and violence or physical illness, actually. Mm -hmm. One just leads to the other. It's very dysfunctional, old kind of early industrial uh, and military approach to education that we're, we, still, we still got it as a dominant factor around the world. Um, so, yeah, I guess my first book was very much a political book, socio-political, not as in party political. Mm -hmm. Uh, you won't get me loving any particular political party, but uh, socio-political and anthropological, sociological book. A lot of people did use it as a parenting book because it talks so much about uh, what children need in order to develop in psychological, emotional health. Uh, what is it that um, in our early formative years, what conditions us to having the most open and loving relationships with the world and ourselves? And there's, yeah. a, there's a tremendous science behind that. So I put that in there in the book very much. And people do, some parents use it as a resource for parenting and a lot of educators as well. Uh, although that wasn't the main reason behind the book. Which is kind of why you did heart-to-heart -heart parenting, I think, to kind of give parents the actual parenting yes. book. And yeah. I just want to spend a minute on it because I really want to go into <laughs> Yeah, sure. <laughs> Our child journeys. Okay, uh, so after Parenting for a Peaceful World, I thought I do need to relanguage those uh, those things about childhood development and um, it, it, for for mums and dads. And that book is conversational. I lift the the politics and the social evolution out of it. It's a conversation with mums and dads, but it's equally about what parents need. We're growing up as our children grow up and we have deep and important emotional needs. Uh, if you make the whole conversation about what, what to do for our children, what happens is that parents break and parents fall into an abyss of guilt about getting it wrong. And that stress, that particular kind of stress, robs families and robs parents of the enjoyment um, of parenting that is possible. I know that often it's, it's a challenge and everything that grows us up is a challenge, right? But it needs to be a lot of enjoyment. In, it's, a, it's a human right. Our children need us to be enjoying the, the journey, you know, for their well-being. So that book was equally about what do parents need? What do we need? Um, what do our hearts need? So it's a healing book for parents as well as for children. 
which led to book number three. I think you wanted to go there. I do. And, you know, one of the things I want to stress right from the beginning is uh, don't think this is a parenting book necessarily either because you don't even get to how to talk to your actual child, not your inner child, until page 187, which is a glorious thing. I went through the book and have dog-eared and underlined and circled all kinds of things. By the way, I should say this book is eminently readable, approachable. Uh, do not, um, if you think about you know books being overwhelming to do, Robin has done a beautiful job of making this book have beautiful illustrations and pull quotes and little graphs and charts and exercises. Again, it's it's approachable, it's doable, and I just can't say enough good things about it. Um, but you tell us, Robin, why does it take 187 pages before we ever get to the part about talking to our actual child? What are we doing before that? Because it's not a parenting book. It really yeah. isn't. It's not. If you're wanting to look for any, any suggestions or guidance uh, about what to do for your children, you won't find any of that in, in my third book, in um, Inner Child Journeys. Um, and in fact, you know, it, it, although that it mostly addresses that context of the parent, child or teacher, it was, the book is also for school teachers and carers, grandparents, anyone who has um, children in your life. Um, it, it, it kind of speaks to that context because of that phenomena in which when you have a, a child near you, you're likely to feel triggered, whether you're noticing that or not, whether you're aware of that or not, you're triggered. A lot of your own um, childhood experiences st emotionally start to rise to the surface. And if you're not aware of that, that, that that's going on for you, that your own inner child or inner adolescent is being activated, then that's when we fall into the trap of projecting uh, our own past it's like smearing the child in front of us with our own past. And um, that's a universal kind of a process that happens to all of us. It's problematic when we're not aware and conscious that that's going on. But I see in that, um, and a lot of us do, the potential for a wonderful opportunity that once you know that you've been triggered, you can use that for your own personal growth and healing because the child in front of you has reminded you of an important experience of your own childhood. And if you're feeling conflicted, that's a sign that your inner child wants a response. Your child just gave you the service and the gift just by being themselves of bringing that reminder by pressing your buttons. And right there, so much can open up about, um, you know, this, this is where I get to start completing what was incomplete for me in my own childhood, if I give that to myself. So it's not about, but look, I do want to say the conversation begins from that space, the context of the adult and child relationship. This book can be used and I want it to be used for the way that our inner child staff gets treated in all of our relationships your workplace, your, your, your partner, your friends. So you can adapt the book. You can cross out the word child and, and just put in any other person in your life, right? 
and and it works and and, and it's my desire that the book be used that way widely and it's a personal growth forgiveness book with a map for how to get there um it's not a parenting book so i just want to say on page 72 and i think we're yeah. going to try to get uh, permission to put this graphic in with the transcript if you're on the kindredmedia.org site uh, but there's a, a photo, a, a drawing of uh, a mom and she's shaking a little rattle and looking very depressed. And uh, there's a little crying child in the high chair, but behind the child, expanding up the wall behind him is this dark shadowy figure with horns and making a ah, monster face and arms reaching out. So in reality, it's a wonderful, wonderful illustration. Oh, there's the crying child. But what is she seeing and what is she experiencing? As you say, this is there's a word for this, the neuroception. This is yeah. a biologically based, you know, yeah, neuroscience yeah, yeah. term of what's going on here, which is sure. another reason I really like the book is because once we trot out the science behind what's happening, I uh, I personally feel, and then I I talk to other people who have also gone through the process of, of looking at themselves in a more uh, biological lens at this shame projection that we get from our culture and not being super uber parents and that sort of thing disappears because the science is pretty clear that we're we have some needs that were not met <laughs> early on how we got here is kind of it's not unknown now with the neurobiology pieces but um but the, so the neuroception is ground in the in these cells these absolutely yeah, yeah in our in our being and you have a lovely mm -hmm. chart here that even show examples of commonly held projections yeah um and one of them is the good baby and the resulting behavior towards the child is we praise and reward conditionally because so there's good. positive projections that are just as problematic as the negative projections yes and yes. there's so many examples of that in the book and um um i mean we do we do that so much there's so, there's so much to be said about projection that um i get excited to talk about it even though it's a difficult subject that i don't know where to start lisa <laughs> Um, uh, my God, which, 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 which fruit to pluck from the tree first? Well, you I, could take a big yeah. leap back to the, yeah. uh, from the micro to the macro and, and talk yeah. about how does projection, um, uh, figure into politics. <laughs> I mean, you had the, the parenting. Well, do you know what? Let, let's start with the, with the neurobiology of projection, shall we? Okay. Because that, that way we're all on the same page about why it happens and how universally it happens and how unstoppable this thing is. Yes. Because it used to be, you know, um, it was actually poor old Sigmund Freud, uh, dear departed, may he rest in, in peace. He was the guy that really popularized that term. He may have even come up with it. And it's that, you know, you've heard it enough in our, you know, psychological culture that we have now that, you know, we've understood well enough that sometimes we see each other clearly often we have projections about one another's motives. Like I might think that you're coming in with some, you know, you make a joke and I think that you're being hostile and aggressive in your, in your, in your humor. And then I react, uh, you know, with anger towards you and you're shocked because your joke 
did not mean that at all. You were actually trying to be warm and affectionate. That, that's just, just a, an example that I plucked out of the air. And I think most of us are familiar with it. That goes on. But what I think most people think is that that is a, um, a rare occurrence that it occasionally gets into your mind. The projection is like a, you left the window open and a fly came into your house and it doesn't happen that much. Um, it happens all the time and uh, almost incessantly. And, um, and it's not no longer just a concept brought to you care of psychotherapists. We've, we've now understood the neurobiology behind it. Um, and there's so much to it. And I've, I've, I've mentioned it in the book. Um, you know, for one, the ocular nerve from your eye uh, feeds into memory centers mostly. So most of what we see, we don't see the world around us as, as a full picture. Most of what you think you see is greatly colored in by the sum total of your lived experiences. And it happens in a flash in a nanosecond. So when I'm looking at you right now on my screen, Lisa, I think I have an accurate picture of how you look. I'm seeing little bits of you, little pixels of you and the rest, my brain made it up. Mostly I'm seeing memory. You can start to imagine why that's so confusing and problematic for our, for our relationships. And what that word neuroception refers to is, um, it's just a, a, a really another word for projection, but um, but it, it, in a way that understands that projection isn't just floating in space. There's a there's a basis for it in flesh that our environment triggers body memory, in, in what, what the scientists call implicit memory. So that there's the simply put that our bodies remember not everything necessarily uh, as a narrative, but we do, our bodies remember everything that we have felt. Our bodies remember all sensation and emotion that we have experienced all the way back to the third trimester inside our mother's womb. And feelings from any time in our life, feelings and sensations are constantly being re-triggered so that I'm, you know, that starts to color the emotional reactions that I have to you that aren't really so much about you. So Lisa, the moment you've arrived, I'm starting to have responses to you, even silently on the inside that are about my history. Say, if you remind me of somebody, a friend in my school that I was really fond of, I will be, you know, you will be troubled by my fondness of you before you even start to speak. It can go the other way as well. And people ask me, well, how's a positive, how's a positive projection also a problem? And I think if I give you some live examples of that, it suddenly becomes quite clear. I mean, how many times have you seen say a, a kid in a school that's really got a lot of emotional issues and has become a bully and is really terrorizing other kids in the school. But then when you bring, you try to bring um, 
that to the attention of the parents to see if they can help out. And, and how many times have you seen that parents will say, no, my child is, would never do anything like that because he's an angel or she's an angel and um, et cetera. So that's a positive projection that refuses to believe the totality of the child's potential. And it gets in the way of the necessary response. Um, what's another positive projection that is, ends up being catastrophic? Um, you'll all know somebody that stayed in a relationship that was incredibly abusive for far too long. With that story that says, I can see that deep inside there's a good person. So projection also works by exclusion, by smearing over, by, by painting, by putting wallpaper over the fact that you're getting beat up. It might be a good the person. Stockholm yeah. syndrome or the battered wife syndrome. Um, I think, yeah, that is part of what is the Stockholm syndrome, of course, um, of the refusal to see that you're getting hurt and that the other person intends to hurt you. There's right. the intention to, to wound you. And, um, oh, no, 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 but he's so, such a good guy deep down. And, you know, um, and that's not really, that's, it gets confused with forgiveness. It isn't. Forgiveness is only possible when you see the totality of the person, you know. Um, you know, and then this becomes catastrophic politically. How many people said, oh, give this president a chance, you know, he's just, he's just, you know, he's just somebody that speaks his mind. Um, but he's really trying to shake things up. I think and, it's about 37% of Americans right now. <laughs> yeah. It's really shocking to me still. And, and meanwhile, your country and much of the world is being dismantled and ripped to shreds. The environmental protections are being thrown out, you know, Oh no, it's very uh, clear. It's absolute clear. disarray. So, um, but we, this is not about Trump or the 37%, you know, mm -hmm. humanity have been doing this to our own detriment from the beginning the, with a positive projection that say, when we get frightened and we feel insecure, what happens is, is that you know, it's an inner child thing. We're being triggered into that place of, you know, the, even though I might be thinking and talking as a, as a, as a grown up, but I'm in, I'm regressed. I'm in this emotional place of, of um, being a frightened baby or a frightened two or three year old. And this happens to everybody. Mm. You've got the adult part of your consciousness, but you also still carry within you the baby, the toddler, the adolescent, etc. Um, emotional state that we, we re repeatedly regress to when something triggers us. So in a time of chaos or disorder or economic uh, gloom, if we, um, we're all triggered and we all start becoming frightened like children sometimes, but if you're unconscious that that's what's going on, 
that is the person that is likely to fall in the trap of, I want mummy or daddy to come and save us. Yeah. And it's, we, we don't tell ourselves that. We say, we, we pretend to ourselves that we're adult. We believe it. It's a, like a, a real disconnection from here down. So what we say is these are times when we need a, a strong leader. We need someone who's strong. So strong means I'm going to have to sit up straight with you using that voice, that authoritarian voice. Yeah, yeah, right. It gets you. It triggers you right away, doesn't it? Snap to it. I, I probably sounded like one of your school, school teachers right there. But this is what happened. You know, time and time again, humanity has just promoted the authoritarian that gives us the opposite of what we actually need. The authoritarian. That sounds like, you know, I've got a strong hand. I will, I, will, I will drive this ship in the right direction and make the tough decisions. Look, the tough decisions includes squashing you and starving your family, leading us usually straight to war. Because uh, authoritarians are warlike. It goes hand in hand. When you declare war on democracy, you declare war on your own people. You, you're the guy that declares, or the woman, that declares war on everybody that comes near you. So I hope that makes sense in my... It does. Uh, I, I wanted to, um, yeah. uh, this quote from the book, I'm, I'm going to put on a graphic and maybe even a bumper sticker. It, you're, you're very quotable. Uh, this one is, understanding our history can free us from it and in turn free our children from it. Uh, just that right there is... Um, uh, enough to chew on for quite some time, you know, understanding our own history, what you're saying. And then you and I were saying before we started recording, you know, I, I think when we, we parked our biological imperatives uh, back there down the road a while back, especially in America, and we don't make public policy according to what homo sapiens need in order to be optimally healthy and well in our country. We don't have paid leave. We don't have protections for breastfeeding. You know, we have one of the highest rates of infant and, and maternal morbidity in the developed world. It's, it's atrocious that we are supposedly the richest country and we are at the very bottom of most health measures, especially for children. So, uh, but, I, but, I, but that's because of our view. Uh, we're different, we're special, we're individual, and we're industrial machines, I guess, without biological needs. So um, the, the piece that uh, what I have seen, and, and we were talking about when you reintroduce this humbling idea that we are human and we are biologically programmed and we have needs, a lot of what we're experiencing, like you were saying, this is our neurobiology that's in there. <clears throat> I can feel in myself and, and when I've worked with others in groups, uh, the, the humility that comes with the owning of what and who we really are allows for a lot of the toxic shame in our culture to have no ground to get rooted. It seems like the forgiveness is easier if we, if we have this kind of um, explanation for what is going on. And you were saying that there's a, you know, the piece of forgiveness in here that can come for parents, especially um, who seem to get beat up an awful lot. And, and, and this is why I think understanding our own history and, and not just understanding it, that won't give you enough, but if you have 
a simple map for how to climb out and climb free of history to start to, to be the author of, a, of not repeating your own history, how to feed the wounded inner child so that quite naturally you start to progress and have more of your, uh, the, the adult self uh, healthier and fuller. If you understand that process, the understanding of what are the steps forward, that's why that is the most, I think the most powerful form of social activism because it changes cultures from the soil up oh yeah from the soil up without the march the protest without throwing bricks through the window without a leader that one you know that the that the authoritarians can decapitate mm. without a manifesto that can be burnt you change the world by, by changing the soil from which the culture grows. And then that culture selects a whole different quality of, of leadership. So the forgiveness that you were um, um, making mention of earlier on is, um, look, let, let me back up a little bit. I really did not set out to write a book about forgiveness. Um, I'm not actually, and I'll say this in my book, I, I'm not a fan of forgiveness. I'm a fan of trying to learn to see how things are. And, you know, as a practicing psychotherapist, I've never once in my life ever said to anyone, now it's time for you to forgive your parents or forgive your abusers or whatever. I've never said that and I, would, I will never. Uh, because I believe that there's nothing that does more harm than trying to conjure up the feeling that you want to have and shove it over the top of what you're actually feeling. Oh yeah. I trust in going to what you're feeling and holding that well. And that naturally moves you through. Um, if you know a little bit about how, so it, it turned out to be a, a figurative, a forgiveness book and so many levels and that caught me by surprise like the book was writing itself and many times i sat down and thought i think this is what forgiveness is starting with forgiveness of ourselves and that psychology and the industry and the faculty and the science of psychology really made the world think about pathology like we there's something sick about us because we get emotionally regressed and um <laughs> what a what an abysmal uh, idea that that has been right there's no what, measure what, for wellness i i just want to point out in that system there's only you can be sick sicker or sickest uh in our current you know the pathology based uh psychology medical model as you that that's that's true and 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 psychology kind of grew out it was a rib that was taken from the side of medicine and it just it wants to be like a big brother all the whole time you know and psychology still hasn't learned how to be itself and so it pathologizes and finds a way to you know speak in terms of illness and disorder and whatever you know what i demonstrate in this book is that everybody regresses it is if you have an, uh, a nervous system in your body emotionally you regress you can still talk 
in adult sentences, but there's emotions that come from your from your past. That is the uh, the essence of implicit memory, um, body memory. So it's a normal thing, but further, I think that there's an evolutionary advantage to that, mm-hmm. which means, which is this, the purpose of re- the evolutionary purpose of those uh, repeated, repeated, repeated emotional regressions is that you're supposed to wake up to that and, and say to yourself, ah, I am, I'm, I'm regressed right now. I'm feeling feelings from when I was, you know, maybe a toddler. And what that points to a need. It's not just a feeling. Yeah. All of those old feelings are, are pointing to an unfulfilled need or a partially fulfilled developmental need. And the regression is saying, is tapping you on the shoulder and saying, it's time for you to have that emotional need met. Your needs are simple. But if you find a way to fulfill that need from your environment or to give to yourself, you will liberate, you will, it's, that is organic growth, um, which then starts to free your vision about the people in your world. And, and the direction is towards more loving, by the way, that seems to be the, um, the, the, the one way street. Uh, our, our uh, psychological growth leads inexorably in the direction of more love towards ourselves and each other and the non-human environment. So understanding regression is what this is about. So instead of, you know, to me, what what I'm excited about in in the book is that um, instead of, you know, it seems to me like most people go, Oh my God, I'm acting like a kid and you know, and then I'm stupid or, you know, or that's crazy. No, it's not. What's crazy is not to listen to that and for the adult part of you to take care of that inner kid. That's when you're going to get hurt. But, you know, thank goodness that we regress because I think just about everybody, possibly everybody, we've got these tremendous kind of incompletions from our childhood, our babyhood or adolescence. We carry big wounds and big scars. Um, and but you get then this opportunity built into the system that you can play catch up with that very powerfully and it's never too late you can be 75 years old and give a response to that child inside that is calling you right so i want to tie a couple of things together yeah. <clears throat> here and and say just to clarify my my perspective on the the shame and forgiveness was um i the orientation that you offer in your book is so uh, different and is so it, it takes you to a different place there is no reason almost for forgiveness when you get to the end because there's no reason for the shame you have a different orientation you have a different model to work with you have uh self-empathy and and what you say about self-empathy here is Self-empathy enables us to say, when the world is not okay for me, I am okay with me. So it's not the consciousness of the adult can now is ready to come in and care for those inner child parts. Um, I like the self-empathy piece. It's the energy of the protest 
and the, and the potential for protest is built into our into our system. It's in the, it's part of the operating system of of having a human body. So that and you see and you see the the the, the automatic protest um, in in your baby and and in your toddler very forcefully when um, when and toddlers are the sort of the peak maximum of narcissism you know it's normal and healthy to be a complete narcissist when you're a toddler um and so from that narcissistic position because you know the 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 full degree of empathy where you really recognize that other people have their own um needs their own worth that grows very slowly and over time and you you know that even teenagers are still uh, limited in their empathy and quite narcissistic. That's a normal part of self-development. It's neurological. It grows like a tree. It takes years. Okay, it doesn't happen overnight. And but the 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 the, the function the the developmental function of that protest when little kids go ah you know because they didn't get their chocolate or whatever it was that they were nagging you for that's built into them so that that's how they start to make themselves feel okay when the world doesn't feel okay because they didn't get their their something trivial or something really sometimes something very important like i I wanted you to pick me up and protect me and hold me and you didn't and i'm mad at you for that 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 expression of the protest is vital that's how that's the beginning stage of how as toddlers we we started to build the layer of self-sufficiency that look life is 50 percent about disappointment if i when i when life lets me down because the the person i was in love with doesn't love me back they're not attracted to me or the job i wanted fell through or my business collapsed or all of those things or um etc 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 who is it that who do I have to come home to in myself? If 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 I know how to say, rah, that hurt, and I didn't like it, that sets the clock right again on the inside. And shame grows out of proportion and becomes a kind of a lasting legacy that we carry it on our shoulders like, a, like an elephant, when that protest is suppressed and shamed by the parent. Mm-hmm. Don't talk back. How dare you? Smack. Lower your, you know, don't take that tone with me. You know, kids are, it's very inelegant and it's hard to sit with a tantrum and you don't want to be manipulated by that. But parents don't just stop at the I won't be manipulated line. Mm. What what culturally we've done is we punish the hell out of the kids. So the protest becomes, it's, it's aborted. It's, it's crushed before it even gets to grow properly. Uh, that becomes the, the world is bad because I'm bad. Uh, and th- that stays, it tends to stay for life up until we, we start to bring some attention and some healing to that shame is so utterly crippling and so many people, so many people are, are, are just 
crushed by that shame memory. It's mostly a memory. And, and our shame is mostly someone else's shame. Our elders shamed us when we were children because we were doing the thing that they had been shamed for. What, what elders are saying when in the shaming process, when we start to crush the child, we're saying, how dare you give yourself the right to speak out when I was punished for that? Don't you dare do that in front of me. You see, that's acting out. Projection becomes acting out if you don't examine it. You act out on the child by crushing and punishing, shaming, suppressing the child. Why? Because when the child still has the freedom to express their true feelings, we get, it's our own inner child that's been triggered. And, and, um, the alarm bell start to go like, I wanted to protest like you. And I was slapped. I was told I was stupid. I was sent to my room and sent into solitary confinement. And that pain starts to come up and the rage that goes with it. If that remains unconscious, we become dangerous to our children because then we punish the child in front of us for what was done to us. So I don't think it is an option to really start to understand our, the, our own triggers and our inner child. I think it's a necessity for the sake of everyone around us uh, as well as for our own sake, because without that, every time we get triggered, we project about ourselves, about others. Then we either act out onto people in our environment, usually our children, or we act out, we act in, we act, against ourselves you know in a self-harming manner and um addictions are possibly the biggest example of self-harm addiction to work addiction to food addiction to porn addiction to facebook addiction 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 yeah <laughs> <laughs> just being on the phone all the yeah, time right? <laughs> Well, hey, that, that, that's me, by the way. What I'm talking about. Oh no, my chiropractor uh, will tell you about my neck, my phone. So, uh, well, uh, what do so, they call it now? Is isn't it isn't it um, Facebook neck? Oh yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. You have to uh, really be careful. Oh my you know? god! Like it's my job. I'm sorry, I have to be conscious Jesus. about that. Yeah. Almighty, what have we done to ourselves? Oh, it's not. It's not pretty. Um, so let me let me just kind of take us into a different territory here. Um, yeah. This was not not on our uh, menu, but I, I'd like to go there anyway because I, I we're studying on kindred th uh, through Darshan Arvise's work. What is going to help us out of the rut we're in now? And a lot of what we're looking at are indigenous worldviews in terms of finding models for sustainable wisdom. And one of yeah. the uh, barriers, I, I think, uh, maybe if you don't think about it, or you know, maybe you won't notice uh, to going into a book like this is, I feel like this is a very, um, almost a shamanic book, because it's, you are asking someone to become aware of inner states of consciousness, and to journey through those conscious, those states in a conscious way, and then to integrate them in a conscious way. And when you do something like that, you're healing transgenerational trauma, you're sparing future generations from this trauma. 
I mean, it's a tremendous act of healing with far reaching consequences for you to actually do the work in this book and to go through again. Yeah, and, and, and absolutely. And, and beginning with self, you know, it, it's the book is saying, you're not mad. You get triggered. You know, it's, it's, it's not what's wrong with you. It's what has happened to you. Yeah. All you need to begin to do is bring attention to that. And then and it'll bring you to what it is that you need in order to come through that moment. And, and um, if you take a little bit of that, what would feed that need for yourself, it's usually simple and not, not a, definitely not expensive. It's usually free of charge. Mm-hmm. It's not about buying a better car. I guarantee you that. It, it, um, then it, it's, it's so utterly liberating and you start to really see not because a shaman might've said it, but you start to see the beauty that is in all of us. We behave like bastards. We behave like shit against ourselves and each other, but that's the wounding. And the, the, the beauty that becomes so obvious about ourselves is if you really understood the, the impact of what we have lived, that we survivors, what we are survivors and veterans of mm-hmm. the forgiveness moment, I called it the, ah, no wonder experience Yeah, where right. from the pit of your belly, you get the words that come up my God, no wonder I've been acting so badly or no wonder my child has been acting so weird or, and, and that's true for, for everybody. It's, um, uh, you know, I, I think I accidentally stumbled into a way to explain forgiveness to myself because mm. I've always had people say, you should be more forgiving, blah, blah, blah. And I just go, really? And, you know, what I don't want to be is somebody that fakes forgiveness, you know, and be that pious and all of that. But, it, but oh, my goodness, it's forgiveness is this accident that happens to you. It just hits you from behind when you're curious and instead of saying what is wrong with me or what is wrong with you, what happened to you? And when, if you let yourself hear the story, mm-hmm. not just the story, but how the, how the story felt to a person, which includes our own, what it felt like for me to be a child. It takes a bit to really um, recall that. Not just what happened, but how it felt. You see that story and forgiveness just happens then to you it happens automatically um or it begins to happen um in fact i'll suggest this as an exercise to anyone listening right now think of somebody that you know that you're find really unpleasant and you you know you find them repulsive or horrible and um you know first part of the exercise don't try to change the feelings that you have towards that person just accept that you have every reason to, you know, if you hate somebody or you're revolted by them, that's okay. That's, that's an, a necessary and understand, understandable emotional reaction. 
you just don't want to act out that stuff, but accept those emotions. The next step is do anything that you can to learn about that person's, the, the childhood experiences that led them to be the kind of person they are today. I don't want you to excuse their behavior. You know, um, like for instance, if I am to forgive somebody who's abusing authority, the first thing that needs to happen is their position of authority needs to be taken away from them because they're doing harm. I don't mean permitting behavior. You, we, we need those boundaries. However, not to, when I understand the story that led that person to become that way, notice what you feel then, okay? Learn about the childhood of that individual, but try to imagine not just what happened, but how it felt to be that child and see if you don't think that you'd end up behaving just as badly as them. Yeah. We get people, we're breakable. Human beings are breakable. And if you think you're tough as an adult, forget it because as a child, you weren't. We're breakable and we can get altered. We can, we can become uh, quite monstrous, in fact, when we are treated monstrously enough as children. Yes. So in the book, you end up talking about building the heart-centered, heart-connected tribe. Mm -hmm. And it's always uh, when you go there, and I remember years and years ago when uh, I had you, we were, we were doing uh, Pathways Connect groups, and we were talking about the accidental tribe. Sometimes you end up with people raising your children together, and they become your accidental tribe for a while. But the description of this, the building the heart connected tribe is so rich. And it's so, it's such a wonderful idea that you could be with adults and everyone has enough skill um, to let their inner children be present that there is genuine playfulness and creativity and open heartedness. Um, but you know, that takes some uh, skill in our culture where people, feel like they're not safe to be, to express themselves in that way. So how do we build you, a heart-centered tribe, Robin? Well, and, and there are so many heart-centered tribes around the world and, and most of them, the great majority of them, we will never hear about, of course, because it's not like they announce themselves on, uh, you know, they don't own a building and uh, necessarily with a sign out the front. Um, and I've always been in, you know, I've written about this many on, on, in many spaces, not just my current book, you know, that I, I want people to go to the place where, you know, to that watering hole where the other animals come to drink that are like you. And I think what creates the heart, the heart connected tribe is basically congregating around your core values. Mm. You know, uh, for example, when our daughter was little and she went to a democratic uh, primary school and it's a bit of hard work, actually, it was the school was run by parents. It wasn't just a place to drop off the child and pay your fee. 
In other words, it meant that it required you to have a strong commitment to democratic education. And I discovered then that, you know, the other parents that took their children to this school were similar to me in that whatever they did in their lives, and they came from every walk of life, professionals and business people and whatever you, whatever you, you think, that they really felt so strongly about their children have, they want their children to have a choice in what they learn and to learn what they love, um, that they would go to the trouble to make that happen. And um, that, that's what I call a core value. Okay. So we were different to each other. We disagreed on many things, but we shared that core value. And it, I really noticed how it made us naturally compatible. So that a lot of those people are still our friends many, many, many years later. We love them. They love us. They, we, we, we miss each other. We, um, it's given us kind of some uh, lifelong relationships. The school was like the, the water hole that all the animals come to of the similar variety, you know, um, mm -hmm. and um, to drink together. And um, so none of us agree on everything. No place wherever there are two or more people, there's going to be some conflict and some friction, but core values. And I find that our beliefs, even though we struggle to live up to them, we all fall off that horse repeatedly and try to get back on. But the beliefs that we aspire to in terms of how we want our children to be treated, how we want them educated, how we want to raise them that is so deep and so core that to to know where similar-minded people are starts to give you a tribe mm -hmm. and going to be with those people physically is um irreplaceable kind of support we all need that we're we're not creatures of aloneness we we suffer we break we get ill we get depressed um I dare say that your work, Lisa, is a way of creating very much a very large online tribe because it's not necessarily that you thought of this way, but what's happened is that you've cast a net enormously around the world virtually and, and people that have some shared heart sense of what we want to happen for families and children gather and we don't sit with each other much and we necessarily we're spread around the world. But um, even if it's a virtual tribe, it still has its life-giving uh, benefits. So as I was writing this book, I realized that I know a few styles of conversation that are more intimacy building than when you and I tell each other or not just tell, but show each other a little bit of showing of who we were as children. If we're intentional about that conversation where we seek it, where we open up to each other about that, where we, and you and I have done that. We've talked to each other about the struggles and the love and the hate and the pain and this, everything about our, our life with our own parents and it's made you and I a lot closer immediately. It's 
a trust builder. Wherever there is a room and, a, and people sitting together, and if we allow the inner child to be sometimes to, to show a little bit like a window in the conversation, uh, it's not that we have to stay in that mindset at all. I mean, mostly we are adult and um, we have other things to get along with, but to open that up to each other, some of our history. It just so, builds this, this, this loyalty. You, you, pay attention to that. Someone tells you about their own inner child. You start to love them and you're helpless to that. You're helpless to it. It just comes out of your body. Um, I, I love that process. It's more think, fun. Oh, well, it's, it's fun. fun. It's always more fun. It's much yeah. more playful. It makes the room more playful. Um, but it's also very touching, very moving, and it cements the possibility of contact, a, a deeper connection. And, and suddenly, that's a person across the room that you would defend. You would, you would help them if they're in trouble. You, 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 you would hold them if they're crying, and they you. So inner child work in a group, I think it has a magic to it. It just... It takes strangers and makes family out of them. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I'm very ambitious about this. Uh, you know, uh, it's not necessarily that myself and my book will do it, but that that I've, I, to me, I'm a cog in a in a in a in a big engine. But um, I want to see that style of conversation grow around the world, where we regress all the time. Anyway, we may as well start being open with each other about that. Yeah. It, 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 there's the potential for all of humanity to be one tribe. And, and um, I'm not just kind of throwing cliches at you right now. I, I, I believe that because I can see the building blocks of how that is made to happen. That's right. We've talked about the neuroscience in this book. We talked about the history of what happens with children who are raised in authoritarian cultures and how that turns out uh, eventually with um, the trajectory of a country itself. Um, so uh, these are not, this is also one of my concerns is the sentimentalizing of childhood and parenthood and families. Um, means people are more likely to even dismiss the, that, those, that language. I just did an interview with Joan Williams, who has spent her life as a social scientist analyzing language that turns people off and on so that she can try to help breastfeeding activists go to their legislators in their states to get breastfeeding uh, law passed. But you have to know what's going to make them turn off and off, on and off to your message, depending upon their values. And it is such a micro, it is such a, I just heard that we, we may actually get um, a workplace breastfeeding law in the United States, a federal one that, that's been submitted and that would take care of that and we wouldn't have to go to individual states. But yeah. I, I just, it's on the table. This is a, this is a process for, um, her book, by the way, is called A White Working Class. Uh, and she says class cluelessness is really our problem in America. We don't understand. We've been pitted against each other in this economic situation. And uh, a lot of uh, working class uh, people, which I come from, are, are saying it's, you know, the, it, it's racism that we're packing it off on instead of 
how we are uh, in a rigged economic system. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really what has happened to that and toxic masculinity. Anyway, that that'll be out soon too. But Robin, what I'd like to talk about for just a second is when I first went through this book and I thought, what a tremendous resource for uh, going forward right now the, in the condition the world is in with the politics the way it is. Because now if you have this inward understanding of yourself and some tools to help integrate yourself, it is easier to look out there and go, oh, wow, those kids did not get what they needed. <laughs> You know, these are, these are some, uh, you know, to, to, as we were saying, bring up more, uh, come from a place of more compassion instead of uh, ourselves being triggered into a place of reactivity and anger or fear. Uh, so I kind of had said this is an activist 101 book as well <laughs> to help us stay centered, to have a very strong core going forward, especially those of us who plan on not uh, dropping the uh, ball anytime soon. We're going to keep doing the marathon running. Yeah, well, on that note of activism, um, a lot of activism tends to be about blame. It tends to be laced with the energy of blame and the language of blame, the rhetoric of blame. And it's about uh, tearing down the building. So the, the, there's a lot of attack that happens in activism. But even, you know, the so-called non-violent activism, which is, you know, I'm glad that we've made that transition, that marches are peaceful and, and uh, uh, you know, unless you're in France, you know, um, th th there's definitely been unmistakably a great movement towards um, non-physically non violent activism in the world. And the thing that we identify as activism, which is usually lots of people out in the street, Right. Well, there's a lot um, to be angry about, uh, you know. There's a lot to be angry about, but anger, absolutely, there's a lot to be angry about, but anger and attack and blame are two completely separate things. You know, I, I, I want to be, I hope everyone is angry about, about the destruction of our environment that's killing people. Australia's on fire and, and people have died and, you know, we should be scared. Being scared means you're waking up to what's going on and angry. That does not mean attack. I've look, I know for me that I've put a lot of energy over my life that, you know, being mad at corporations and corporations are bad or this aspect of capitalism is bad or, or etc. And, and if I really pay attention to my voice, I, I feel like in, in that mode, I'm kind of, I'm a teenager and really in my body, I feel straight away the connection to how I would fight with my father as a teenager that I, I so passionately resented his authoritarian ways, his in refusal to listen to my side, his imposition of his, you know, worldview which felt completely poisonous to me and so i got caught up in trying to tear down and bring down my dad as the sort of the looming male that was blocking out the sunlight for me and um i mean and i'm a little sad about that as i say it because i also love my dad profoundly and uh he's gone now he's been gone for about seven or eight years um but 
that has stayed within me and I, and I'm still, I, I almost, I can feel this sort of adolescent pleasure at pointing the finger and saying bad. And I think that that aspect of activism is undermining. It's polarizing. It's exacerbating the polarization of our positions. Um, because people that are identified and associated with uh, that kind of the, the, that 1% or whatever you want to call that with the corporations or the, the people that seem to be the, the holders of power in our society, they just dig their heels in. They feel um, persecuted, attacked. They get angry. They fight back. There's a sort of a equal and opposite force that keeps us stuck in this tug of war. You know, um, it's not effective. And, um, I, you know, I, I do feel like I need to have a different kind of conversation with the inner teenager in me. Mm. And as I start to do that, it has opened up something else. I'm still angry, but I, I'm, I'm putting a lot of my, my energy is I'm, I'm less likely to target individuals mm -hmm. or I no longer even see the corporation as the source of all evil. You know, it, it's become clear to me that the corporation is an expression of us. Sure. It's an expression of us. It's an expression of me. And I'm keeping that thing alive by fighting it instead of just putting creative forceful forcefully creative energy into creating the new building the new the new world that is incompatible with what we have right now that is threatening uh us with the extinction uh look i don't know if i've made that clear but you know it's it feels important that we that we we bring a loving ear to our own quality of activism where is this coming from mm. you know am i am i really the good guy here that is trying to bring down the bad guy there really or is there something something else going on here right yeah. uh and in fact what's the part of me that would would act exactly the same as as the chief executive officer if i was if I was in that role, what's the part of me that is potentially psychopathic? I need to own up to that. If my, if that, that's why, you know, it's not only, as you were saying earlier on about finding the language that won't trigger the holders of power so that we can get our new legislations through for better parenting and breastfeeding, whatever you, 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 you like, it's also about asking good questions. You know, when somebody gets in the way of better legislation, let's look at that example you brought up earlier on of um, uh, workplace breastfeeding and the powers that be are sticks in the mud and they're getting in the way and they don't want to make it possible and they're sabotaging, et cetera, et cetera. And we get frustrated. We start to think that they're bad people and, why they're so selfish and, you know, 
there is corruption in the system, lots of it. But uh, what if we begin to ask questions, not only find better language, because that is important, but ask questions to include the other person that is our so-called enemy um, in the in questions. Why is it important to you? What, what, what do you feel about this legislation? What worries you about the legislation that I'm, that I'm um, pushing for? What does it make you feel? You know, in my experience, the people that are against uh, better parenting legislation, like, you know, supporting breastfeeding in the workplace or, um, uh, you know, support for parental leave, paid parental leave, like they have all over Europe mm-hmm. and parts of South America. The people that are in the way of that, they, they, there's, they, they, they've got their own inner child, just like I do and you. A lot of what's coming up for people is guilt. Um, you say to somebody, we need more breastfeeding. And inside they're thinking, hang on a minute. And they're not even conscious of it, but their body is saying, hang on a minute. I was only breastfed for six weeks. Are you telling me that I'm going to be sick? Are you telling me I'm going to get cancer? That's making me really anxious right now. I'm going to sabotage you. Get out of my office or something even more. You come into my office and I'm the person in the government and you're saying, I want breastfeeding legislation now. I'm going, well, I'm a mother. I didn't breastfeed my child. I couldn't, whatever. My life didn't make that possible. I was told it didn't matter. Whatever the story is, or I was sick or I didn't work, whatever the story is, I didn't like it. You know, Um, there's so many things that go wrong with breastfeeding. I was, I was sexually, I was raped when I was 17. I don't want people grabbing at my breasts. I can't stand it. It freaks me out. Right, so I didn't breastfeed. You've just brought in the legislation that's triggering me like a thousand alarm bells about guilt. You're, if I say yes to you, I'm, I'm, it's going to make me accept that I've damaged my child. You know what? No, denial, get out of my room. So everyone's got their inner child triggered all over the place and we make policy or the lack of policy mostly driven by that <laughs> i'm gonna quote you on that too robin that was great you know we make please do policy based on our inner child's needs we mostly <laughs> do we mostly do uh, the sooner we wake up to that oh the, the, the sooner we're out of this mess yeah. the sooner we wake up to my god okay george george lakoff george lakoff if you haven't look at his youtubes he's a professor of sociology and wonderful researcher wonderful speaker he's so much fun to listen to i forgot what university he's one of an american university years of research sociological research about why people vote and you think you vote for this policy or that policy bullshit <laughs> majority of people don't even know what the policies the goddamn policies we don't know them <laughs> or, or, or or even if you know them you don't understand them we vote for people because, oh, that person reminds me more of my family and I like their voice, the way they dress, the, 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 you know, their manner reminds me more of the people that I'm, you know, my homies. Yeah. I'm going to vote for that dude or that woman. Mm-hmm. And from now on, they could shoot a child in the main street and I'll still vote for them anyway. 
because they are, they're like my mum and dad. Most voting comes from there. This guy's research, I'll give you one little example, gave people, tons of people, this test about the kind of parenting that you come from. People that, that come from very democratic styles of parenting, mm -hmm. by that, I don't mean that your parents told you who to vote for. I don't mean the Democratic Party. I mean parents that listened to you and let you have a voice. They didn't let you have whatever you want, but they will give you a voice, let you have a say. And they don't punish and shame you. People that come from that style of parenting will tend to vote much more towards democracy and toward no war and better gun control. These are tendencies, but they're very powerful tendencies. People that come from what George Lakoff calls a strict father model, that authoritarian parents. And if you haven't worked through the authoritarianism of your parents so that you, know, you do as you're told or else, right? That style of parenting. Those people vote for the authoritarian leaders. Sure. Yeah. It doesn't really, you think you're voting because of what the authoritarian leader says, you know, about the economics or this or that. No, we've just full of these reactions, uh, the inner child reactions that make us choose partners, politicians, who to work for, who we fall in love with. And then the, the head makes a rationale for why we made that choice. That choice was made in the inner child place. Most of the time, you know, is that a little bit chilling? It should be, yeah. you know, that it, it, the sooner we come to terms with that, the sooner we, we can get out of this mess because the children, the, it's not the children, the wounded children are driving the direction of the planet. The wounded, the children. wounded children in all of us, the wounded children in the body of an adult who's not listening to the wounded inner child, yeah. let alone the, the healthy inner child. Yeah. We're not listening to the child inside at all. That's why the child, wounded and otherwise, is, has got control of the airship and is driving it chaotically off the edge of a cliff. Mm. So you betcha this is a, a political activism book without <laughs> being a political activism book. Or a forgiveness book or a parenting book. <laughs> And it's an un yeah. it's an unbook unbook <laughs> of all un of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an unbook. It's an unbook. Are you going to do an audio version? Do you think? No. <laughs> what you mean with all my spare time? I know with all your spare time. Well, uh, that and uh, you know, I was thinking about book groups, books, uh, book study groups. They get together, but some of these exercises you probably just want to do yourself. So, but I bet there could be an ebook in there somewhere for getting together and studying inward child or you know parts of your other work. I'm thinking of you know creating the social aggregate. As you were saying, what's going to be the social aggregate for people to find each other and talk about these um, wonderful ideas? Well. I, um, and again, I'm not the only person doing this, but I really want to add my shoulder to the wheel of, you know, that I will be running um, online as well as in, in real, what, what's, what's, what's the opposite of, what's the non-online world? What do we call that now? The real world? I don't world. know. What is it's, it? all, it's all real. <laughs> so I, real I, I have, 
I do run workshops for people. You know, I love creating groups and we go through the inner child uh, process and we connect with each other. I love doing that. It's, it's a beautiful experience. And um, it's always a little bit scary and uncomfortable, but um, uh, like jumping into a swimming pool, part of you goes, oh, it's going to be cold. And once you're in, you go, oh, this is great. What was I waiting for? It's like, it's like that. That creates tribes and a lot of people stay together as friends afterwards. And I've, I'm moving into doing that online quite a bit to include okay. people from around the world. All right. So that starts very soon. The okay. first course is actually... I've got two levels. One level is to train practitioners, okay, right? Counselors, coaches, psychotherapists. That's excellent. On how to bring in inner child aware conversation or dialogue. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do the whole process, by the way, not at all. You can just have to weave in inner child dialogue and curiosity into your conversation with your um, whoever you're working with, your client, your patient. Okay. Uh, deeply healing and, and, and uplifting and empowering. And I want to train people to do that. Uh, that starts in the late February, February next month. Okay. Kate White. I'm doing it with Kate White. I saw that. And That's great. I, um, I'm glad you asked because this is an opportunity to tell more people. And uh, I don't know where to find. Can you put the link to that? I will put it on the this. transcript. Yeah. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I will also um, very, very soon be, be rolling out um, online meeting places for non-practitioners. Okay. That, you know, it's a di- slightly different emphasis on how I, I just, to, just to put this in the hands of everybody. Sure. On, on how, to, how to speak of your inner child and listen to each other and how to make that safe is the great concern is how to make it safe. Right. You don't need to go into a rebirth experience or something like that. It's not about reliving the worst, the, f- the full blast of the pain of childhood uh, or uh, um, if it was painful at times, it's not about re-experiencing all of it. It's tasting it just enough, just enough that you can go, Oh, no wonder I react this way. It's a compassion bringer. Mm. It sounds like tasting, it's just mindfulness. Yeah. You're just noticing. Oh, I'm just going to notice. I'm not going to force something. I'm just noticing. What, what is that? That's a mindfulness from, practice. From here rather than from here. Noticing, mm. real noticing is from here. Mm. It's feeling that child place so, uh, just enough. And you get this, ah, oh, no wonder. Mm. You get that about yourself or you get, I, or get that about you if it's you that's sharing your experience. Mm. So that's the purpose of it. it um, And I believe that in psychotherapy, the purpose of going back to your childhood is to bring you compassion about yourself. You don't have to relive your childhood. It's just to feel a a bit of it, a moment of it, and you get, you flooded with compassion for yourself. Now you're getting somewhere. Um, Then there are some specific forward steps to take. You know, if I felt lonely as a child and I was without my tribe and I didn't know how to reach out and people were in my high school were rejecting to me and you know I was alone and you know and that that inner teenager for instance is still asking that doesn't go to sleep that part of me is still asking mm. but I've, I've, bec- I've, I've survived that moment in my life by 
forgetting how to reach out because that was shaming to me when I was 15. What if I relearn how to reach out to people that, that are more my kind of people, not like mm -hmm. the people that surrounded me at school? What if I take some little steps to start remobilizing in that direction? Because it's scary to ask someone to dance. What if I get someone to help me with that? Mm. Ah, and now, now I can have some of the feelings of tribe that I missed out on when I was 15 years old. So there's a forward movement that mm. I find quite very promising, actually. And, um, you know, I love the sense and the discovery that we can keep on growing up until we draw our last final breath. That's really good too. Robin, is there anything else that you would like to have our listeners and readers know about, about anything? You, to buy my book, you would need to go online. Yeah. So I, I don't right now have it available in bookstores. Um, and a longer reply to your earlier question about audiobooks. I, I'm first of all, right now it's only as a paperback. It will become a Kindle over the next, maybe I'm thinking in March, I will release it as a ebook as a Kindle as well. Okay. Um, I don't yet know the reason I'm hesitating to let it be an audio book. I don't know how you would have it as an audio book oh, when you need it as a, a workbook that you can, you know, highlight it and write on it and, and refer and, and hold it in your hand. Even with Kindle, you can do that. Yeah. Um, uh, and you can go, uh, um, I would cordially invite you come to my website, Okay. click on publications. And as the menu opens up, you'll see that I've got a page devoted to this book, inner child journeys, click away. And come and visit my page about it. It tells you a little bit more about the book, but also if you scroll towards the bottom, you'll see that there um, I've made the appendix, the appendixes to the book available for free in a printable PDF format because it contains the process. And there's three levels of process. The in-depth one that is probably best for psychotherapists to use. Or do you use it yourself as a kind of a meditation at home? You can read the questions out from the page. There's a shorter one. I called it the inner child journey light that you can just have it as a conversation or you can be thinking about it in the bus on the way to work. It's um, you don't need to be lying down with your eyes closed necessarily. And there's an even shorter one, which is only <laughs> one or two questions. The, 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 the inner child, journey super light which is just that you know when you feel yourself projecting onto people and triggered well hang on what was happening to me around that issue when i was a kid and already you know what every re revolution begins with that the transformation of human society begins with that question it's the begin that's how we take ownership of our destiny. How we take that's how we step into agency, into being co creators of our reality. 
a relationship reality. Instead of blaming the world, we like you're supposed to when you're a toddler and a teenager, but the adult part is to say, wait, I, I can, I can nourish myself well here so that I can start to see the universe around me with more love in my eyes and thereby create a, a completely new set of rules for society, mm. a new operating, a new operating system. It begins with that question. I think what's this saying about me? Where is this coming from inside me? Mm. Let it rain forgiveness. Oh. Hmm. Well, I thank you so much for taking all this time to come and walk through what is a tremendous and considerable amount of work uh, that you presented, not just in this book, but in the last two as well. And I look forward to talking to you more. I will tell everyone that there are um, excerpts from the book on Kindred, and there is the foreword by Ray Castellino, also on Kindred. And of course, you can go to Robin's site at robingrill.com. Isn't that right? Isn't that where you are now? Robingrill.com. That's right. R-O-B-I-N-G-R-I-L-L-E.com. E on the end. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Robin. And uh, anything else at all before we go? Yes, gratitude. Thanks to you. It's, I, I, I mean, I get such a kick out of chatting over these things with you, Lisa. I love that you're there and, um, and, and the work that you do. And, and um, uh, I mean, and, and you ask questions that really get me going. So uh, you're, you're absolutely, to me, you're, you're a sister, you know, we're, we're, we're on the same page. Um, you ever want a piece of tribe? You got some in Sydney, my friend. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you all are okay. You're okay. Okay. Isn't that right? You're okay right now. I should say well, it's <clears throat> been recorded during the time it was right after the fires. We're all hurt. We're all frightened and we're all angry because the more that our country burns, the more these people that control things want to dig more holes and make in, and, 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 and bring out coal and burn it. And uh, it's monstrous. And I think it's important to know that Australia is not just destroying itself. We're hurting the whole world. We're, we're the biggest exporter of coal. So that hurts you. Uh, what what the industry is doing so and no wonder we're so angry um, because the people that have seem to have the control and just oh my god they're not budging they're not budging so we have to push harder and the destruction has been cataclysmic uh, we've lost billions and billions of wildlife animals and beautiful beautiful creatures and bushland that looks like a moon now. Mm. Um, and it's quite a wake up call. I think we're in a moment of, of transition for sure, because a lot of people that would never say boo about climate change are now stepping forward. Uh, you know, the banks, the, the reserve bank, the chief bank, what do you call your main bank in the States? Your, your, um, we the treasury. Yeah, our res yeah. reserve bank is saying it's time. We we got to stop. We they're even talking about now they should buy back all the coal mines 
mm. and all the power stations that that use fossil fuels just buy them and and unpack them put them to sleep mm. so um there is it's a time of great flux and change you know, and we still got February to go, which is the hottest month of the year for us in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia. Um, there's been some rain, a lot of it, um, but it's passed. And it hasn't broken the drought yet. It's the worst drought in, in, in recorded history. Wow. So, you know, the it has begun. It's on the... the it's out of control. The, the the climate is out of control. Uh, we're in the middle of the... You really know it here when you go outside and you can't see the trees for the smoke. And um, there was an afternoon that I, I don't have any respiratory problems at all and never have. Uh, I collapsed. I slept all afternoon because I'd been physically active outdoors and I... It was like I'd smoked three packets of cigarettes in a couple of hours. And um, uh, I'm one of the lucky ones that didn't get taken to hospital because people that normally never get asthma has been getting asthma. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Hospitals are overflowing in casualty with people that can't breathe. Um, yeah. So um, it's time to really get on our knees and and say sorry deeply just to cry about how sorry we are what we have done to mother earth and and really i think to beg uh to be taught how to live and how to retool our industry so that it's circular so mm. everything that we take gets replaced absolutely yeah everything a hundred percent recycle, upcycle, uh, biodegrade with absolutely everything. Um, the circular economy. Um, it's, you know, to return, we've declared war against nature 12,000 years ago and we've been attacking her and therefore ourselves ever since. It's time to come home. Yeah. Ecology is the only economy. Or, or we die. Yeah, yeah. That that's you. Sorry, that's the that's the long answer to your question about how no, things in is. Australia. It is. That's, it is. that's I, where we're at. Yeah. I think my yeah. uh, my only uh, um, I think my own orientation comes from playing in the woods as a child, and somehow Joseph Chilton Pierce called it the Matrix. You know that we get somehow the Matrix programmed me to be aware of it, and uh, so it's been hard. <laughs> to have that awareness because it does mm. seem kind of uh, mm. logical that you would extract something and then have a plan for putting it back <laughs> or for making it better uh, instead of just extraction, extraction, extraction. Um, so that piece is, uh, yeah, that'll be nice. And that piece is addressed in Darsha's work um, under sustainable wisdom and how that orientation of our own um, worldview needs to needs to begin to include this, um, and our Western minds need to stop blocking that potential, that holistic and integrated worldview. 
So Well, we've come to that moment in which if you don't give up smoking, you will die. Absolutely. Horribly, horribly and soon. Yeah. And and um that's usually when human beings make those fundamental identity changes. Mm. We don't do that up until we're on the way to the divorce court or we're at the edge of the precipice on the edge of death. It's usually at the moment of cancer that people start to make the changes that they've known they've needed to make for decades. Right. And, and we're in that moment now where it's do or die. And this, this is usually when people change and it's an identity change. It, that, that's why we're resisting it so much because now we know that we're members of nature. We're not the, the, um, the owners of, or the, or the boss of nature. And if we live as members and, and use biomimicry in all that we do and be part of the circle, mm-hmm. we can thrive. And, you know, with, with industry going as well, this is uh, the technology for circular economy and, um, you know, regenerative agriculture. It's all there. Yeah, it's it is. all there. Absolutely. You know, we can put, put it back as fast as we take it. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so it's not that there's an excuse not to step forward anymore. It's just that we need to let go of being the boss because we are not, we never were. Yeah. We're the humble. We're just, just one of the animals. Yeah. And if you drop, drop down to that, you're just one of the animals. This is the first time you're going to feel loved by nature. You know, the, the trees and us, we're family. They give us the air that we breathe, the oxygen, and they say thank you for our, our feces. They say thank you for our exhalation. Mm. That's, we are like this with them. Yeah. This is one example. The, 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 without humility, none of the love gets in. So... Right I think now. we have a lot to restore our own integrity as a species, but I also see, like you were saying earlier, there's so much going on out there. It's not going to be found on the headline news because it doesn't rake in all, all of the, uh, the ads, um, but, um, but it's there. No. You can see it on yeah. and you can uh, certainly get an idea of, of the orientation for that model in Robin's work. So, So thank you again, Robin, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Me too, me too. You take good care of your good self. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.